Oh, uh, I don't know why that song made me so emotional this morning. Uh, like I got a good sleep last night. It wasn't, I'm not sleep deprived. It's just, uh, maybe it was all you singing so loud. When you sit in the front, you get it from both sides, eh? Like, it's amazing. You sit in the front and you guys are just hitting me from behind and the worship team's hitting me from in front. And I'm just like lost in wonder, love, and praise. He will hold me fast. What an incredible truth that is. Uh, I just want to say, kids, this is stuff that you will one day really understand well. It's hard to get it when you're young, your need for him to hold you fast. But the older you get, the more you cling to those kinds of truths. Because uh, life is hard. (sighs) Human beings suck. And there's countless times over the course of of one's life where you know you don't deserve to be held fast. You feel like the world is closing in on you and crushing you. Uh, And then when you look up and you realize that he is holding you fast, there it is. Oh. Oh, and now I have to try to lead you in prayer. So let me try to lead you in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, we praise you and thank you for the incredible truth that you will hold us fast. When we experience the hardships of life, and some of us have experienced extreme hardship and when we feel like Peter in that picture that we're just sinking down to know that you reach out and grab us and you hold us to yourself because you purchased us with the infinitely precious blood of your son Jesus and so we are so precious in your sight It gives us a comfort that we can find in no other place. And Father, we pray for those who need that comfort in a special way right now. You know all of them. We know some of them. We know that Maureen needs that comfort right now. And we ask that you grant it to her and her family. We know that Reuben and Jamie need that comfort right now. And little Peter, too. And we trust that you are granting it to them. We know that Elizabeth and Vincent need that comfort now, and we trust that you are granting it to them. And for the many others, Father, who suffer, who suffer serious financial struggles, who suffer mental wellness issues, who have relationships that are are deeply wounded and seem to be irreparable. For those who are incredibly lonely, for all those who struggle and suffer, we ask, hold them fast and let them know you hold them fast, we pray. 
And ultimately, Lord, we look to our world right outside the doors of this building is a world that struggles like we do. Many of the same problems and issues, maybe some of them are even worse. And they do not have the comfort of knowing that their Savior holds them fast. And so we ask God, give us boldness to simply point to the one who can take care of them and hold them fast. And may our lives be examples of the joy that comes from knowing that you are held fast in the precious arms of your Savior, no matter what you face. Lord, we pray for the world in which we live. We pray for the ceasing of wars. We pray for the end of corruption that steals, from, steals food from the mouths of the most vulnerable. We pray, Father, for the end of oppression of minority groups, religious minority groups, or sexual minority groups, or racial minority groups, wherever there is oppression, Father, overturn it and bring your peace. May we stand up for your justice in this world. Father, now as we open your word, we ask that you grant us willing hearts to listen to you, to hear what you have to say to us. And we pray, Lord, that your word will do its work in us, that it will cut away that which is displeasing to you, and that it will establish us more fully in you, so that when we leave this place, Father, we are not the same as when we came in. We love you more. We understand you better. We follow you more closely and we share you more openly. Do this, we ask. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So we are again looking at the Lord's Prayer this morning. So I invite you to turn to the Lord's Prayer as it's found in Matthew chapter 6, uh, verses 9 through 13. I'll read the whole prayer again, but of course we're going through it line by line, so we'll be only focusing on one aspect of it this morning. But each time we read it, the, uh, the more it gets drilled down deep into us. So, beginning at verse 9, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples and the whole crowds that are overhearing him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. So as I mentioned, we are uh, again here in the Lord's Prayer as part of our study on the Sermon on the Mount. And we we began last week uh, in the first line of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father 
who is in heaven. We basically spent our entire time kind of unpacking what it means to have God our, as our Father in heaven. To, to, to be a kind of person who can call God Father means that you have been adopted into His family. We are the children of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we talked about all the things that that means and, and how God is not like an earthly father who, you know, can do a good job sometimes, but, you know, on other occasions is kind of not so good at their job and fails. This God is, uh, or this father is a perfect father, which means that he's never wrong, means that when he disciplines us, it is for our good without any hint of malice in it at all. When he blesses us, he blesses us with things that uh, are meant to conform us more and more to the image of our Savior Jesus Christ, because that is his ultimate goal, to have sons and daughters who look like his only begotten son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we said that that is the basis of prayer. In other words, when we go to God in prayer, which is talking to God, communing with God, when we do that, we're supposed to do it on the basis of knowing that God is our Father. In other words, it's, it's reflecting, if I can put it this way, on the lowness of God. That God, if He is our Father, that means, and He's a perfect Father, that means that He is near us. He is approachable. You don't have to be afraid to go to him. You know, the, the only person that gets to just walk in on the President of the United States in, in the middle of the night or whenever they want is, is their children. And that's us with God Almighty. We can walk in whenever we need him. We can go to him and have him hear us because he is near and he's not indifferent People have this picture of God who is like way up there in the sky, you know, sort of maybe watching over the universe, looking at what's going on in the earth, but he's sort of like, hmm, yeah, whatever. Uh, he doesn't really get involved. He doesn't really care. What we saw in verse 8 last time, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him, means that God is invested in our lives. He's, he's always got his eyes on us, not in a suspicious way, okay? Not in that, remember we, we, we reflected on that song, oh, be careful little eyes what you see, oh, be careful little hands what you do, for the Father up above is looking down in love. It's not that. It's not that he's looking at it this way. No, 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 he's not trying to catch us in, in something. He's watching over us. He's locked on to us and he wants to bless us, okay? He's fixated on us because he has our good in his mind, on his mind, all the time. Those of you who have multiple children, you know that it's very difficult to focus on what each kid needs at any given moment and get it right because you're finite, and so, you know, it's usually the kid that's causing the most problem that you're most fixated on, right? And spending most of your time and energy dealing with. But you can't know exactly what every one of your kid needs at any given moment because you're just, you're just not God. But God can, and God does. So, go to him. This means go to him, like, with everything. With everything bladder, blab, whatever's on your heart to him. Spill your guts to him. 
He wants to hear it. It's, and, and don't go thinking that there are the important things that I should tell Jesus about or tell my father about. And then there's the, the, the little things that aren't really important and I should just deal with those myself. You know, Jesus at his first miracle, how does he do it? He does it when his mom comes to him and he says, the party's out of booze. Now, would you ever <laughs> pray a prayer like that? Probably not, right? But Mary does. She goes to him with this small thing, that this, this, this little social faux pas that this family is, uh, is committing, and she says, do something about it, please. So go to him. That's the basis of the prayer. That's the basis of our prayer, this relationship that God is our Father. Okay, so the basis is the lowness. Now, we're going to talk about the starting point of prayer this morning. And it's interesting, it's the highness, it's the greatness, it's the majesty of God that is our starting point in prayer. Because in verse 9, it says, our Father in heaven, yeah, that's who you're addressing, that's your basis of prayer, hallowed be your name. In a sense, this is the first petition in the prayer. We're going to go line by line through this prayer, right? So we're looking today at just this line, hallowed be your name. We're going to look at what that means, what it is. We're going to talk about why it matters, and then we're going to discuss how we do it. How do we hallow the name of God, okay? What it is, why it matters, how we do it. Here we go. Hallowed be your name. What does it mean to hallow something? It's an old word, hey? Hallow. We don't, we don't use the word hallow very much anymore. Uh, I mean, I don't, in my regular speech, I don't. Uh, only when I say the Lord's Prayer, I think, do I ever use the word, hallowed be your name. But what it means is it, it's two sides to it, okay? There's two aspects to it. <clears throat> Excuse me. First of all, to hallow something is to treat something as, as sacred, as special, as set apart. Hallow comes from the word holy in the Bible. Something that is holy is that something that is simply set apart, made separate, revered. Some of you maybe um, grew up in a home where your family had, now I don't think this happens so much anymore, but your family had a special room. You remember this? Like it was the living room, the formal living room. And it had, you know, the nice furniture. Sometimes it, it was like kind of overwrought. It was uh, big or it had like flower patterns on it. And it wasn't really that comfortable, but it was super pristine. And it was a special room for your parents to like have like formal meetings with their minister. Like the, the minister maybe was allowed in there. Or if the elders of the church came and visited, they would meet in there. Or, or, or anyway, you weren't allowed in there though. Because it was this special room. It was this set-apart place. It was a sacred space. Have you ever heard people talk about the hallowed halls of an institution? This is the idea behind this word hallow. That, that it is separated because there is deep respect and honor for this thing, whatever it may be. But it also means, not just that it's separate and holy, it also means to celebrate something. To hallow something is to glory in something. It's to, to, to describe and enjoy and proclaim its beauty, its majesty. It's like when you hear that song for the first time and you think it's awesome and you say to your friend, you totally got to listen to this song. It is so cool. It, it's really, really good. You've got to listen to it. That's hallowing. But even more than that, to, to truly hallow means to take something and treat it as ultimate, 
as most important, as most valuable. Lots of things are valuable, lots of things are important, but in our lives, we always have to have hierarchies of the things that we find important and useful and, and, and uh, that matter to us. We have these hierarchies, but to hallow something is to say, this thing is at the top of the hierarchy. I cherish this thing. So what Jesus is saying when he says, when you pray this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He's saying God must be the thing in your life that is most paramount. This is about praise. Declaring the worth, declaring the value. You know, we come to church on Sundays to worship, right? Comes from an old Middle English word, actually, called worth-ship. So we come on Sundays when we come here and we sing these songs. And if you're a non-Christian, I totally get it. If you're like, what's this about, right? I mean, I know singing along at a concert, you want to do that because it's kind of cool. But I look around, I see all these people belting out these songs. Why is singing so important to Christians when they get together? Half their services are spent doing that. What's that about? This is what it's about. It's about declaring, using your mouth, using your lips, using your body, even as we stand and as people raise, some people raise hands and stuff like that. And those of you, by the way, I've talked to many of you who are like, oh, I kind of want to, but I don't know. Just do it. Just do it. Whatever. God likes it. And your neighbors won't care. Just don't elbow anybody in the head. That's all I'm asking. But what we're doing when we come to worship God is we're declaring his value. We're, in a sense, admiring him. We're saying he is so important to us. But get this. To pray, hallowed be your name, is to ask God to actually do something to you. If it's a petition, it's asking God to act upon you, to act upon your will. Um, John Piper, who knows a lot about this subject, basically built his whole ministry around this idea of valuing God above all other things, he puts it this way. Listen, he says, when you're praying, hallowed be your name, you're basically saying to God, see to it that your name is hallowed. Use your infinite power and wisdom and love to stir up billions of hearts and minds, including mine, to admire you and to prize you above all other things. Let me flip it and explain to you that this, this is actually another way of asking God to either free you from or protect you from something called idolatry. Now, idolatry is another old word. You don't hear people use that word in common uh, conversation so much anymore, but it's a really important word as well. See, the Bible teaches that all human beings have to live for something. We have to have this one thing, at least one thing in our lives that, that is ultimate. It's the thing that will, that we think will make us happy. If we have it, we will find joy and deep satisfaction. If we don't have it, we're completely dissatisfied and continually chasing after it. It's the thing that will make us feel secure. If we have it, we're safe. We can, we can carry on. Whatever else we're dealing with is small in comparison to that thing. But if that thing gets threatened, well, now our lives are in danger and our ability to feel secure is in jeopardy. And it's the thing that gives us purpose. 
Everybody's gotta gotta. Everybody's gotta gotta. Everybody's gotta have a reason to get up in the morning. Why get up in the morning? What's what's the point of going out and going to school or going to work or going to volunteer or going to church or going to anything? What's the point behind it all? We need these things to give us security, to give us purpose, to give us satisfaction. And the Bible says that when you look to anything other than God to give you those things, that is idolatry. We're hallowing things other than God. Think about that. We're hallowing things other than God. But the problem is, if you hallow anything more than God, that thing will ultimately destroy your life. And I'm going to give you a a bunch of examples that will hopefully make this make sense to you. Think about this with me. If you hallow your spouse or a partner, you will be emotionally dependent jealous and controlling the other person's problems will be overwhelming to you now think about this you guys who are in good marriages what what do you say what does what do husbands say about happiness in their good marriage someone want to dare dare yell it out happy wife happy life reason being A husband who has put his wife on such a pedestal cannot bear with the idea of an unhappy wife. Now, I know Proverbs talks about a nagging wife is like a dripping uh, faucet. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the fact that when you are so invested in the relationship that you have with another person, to see them unhappy, it jeopardizes your own contentment. You cannot live secure and Uh, joyfully when that person isn't living secure and joyfully. If you hallow your children or your family, you will try to live your life through your children until they resent you or they have no self of their own. And at worst, you may abuse them when they displease you. If you hallow your work or career, you will be a driven workaholic and a boring, shallow person. At worst, you will lose your family and friends, and if your career goes poorly, you will be driven into a deep depression. If you hallow money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money. You'll be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up in your face. If you hallow pleasure, gratification, comfort, I gotta confess, The more I think about it, I think comfort is one of the things that I try to hallow. You will find yourself getting addicted to something. You will become chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. Now, these are all deeply profound, and I could preach a sermon on each and every one of them. So I encourage you, go back to the recording and listen to this again, because I'm blowing through them so quickly. But, But I'm trying to get you to see how this works. If you hallow relationships and approval... You will be constantly overly hurt by criticism and thus always losing friends. You will fear confronting others and therefore you'll be a useless friend. If you hallow a noble cause, okay, let's get out of all these very selfish things. Let's, let's hallow something useful like a noble cause. Ending poverty, environmental protection. 
These are all good things, right? If you hallow a noble cause, you will divide the world into good and bad and demonize your opponents. Ironically, you will be controlled by your enemies. Without them, you have no purpose. I'll give you one more. If you hallow religion and morality, you will, if you are living up to your moral standards, be very proud and self-righteous and cruel. And if you don't live up to your moral standards, your guilt will be utterly devastating. I hope you get the picture. We can hallow almost anything. And Jesus says, don't hallow almost anything. Hallow God and God alone. Why? Why is it so important? Okay, this is point two. The reason praise gets primacy here in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're called to hallow God over everything else, the reason Jesus makes that so important is because the whole of the rest of the prayer is held together by this rightly ordered heart that praises God above everything else. See, the problem when we come to God in prayer oftentimes is that we are asking him to hallow the things that we hallow. We want him to value the things that we value. The things that we're asking him for, we need him to provide. And it's not so much him that we're looking to for it. We're just looking to him to, to or for our, we're not looking to him for our satisfaction and joy. We're looking to him to provide the thing that gives us our satisfaction and our joy. But when we praise God first, okay, when we hallow him above all other things and we see his glory and we see his wisdom and we, we see his profound worth, it shapes the way we look at ourselves and our problems and the world in which we live. Let me, let me just show you how this works with one of these petitions. It says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's confession. I have met with many, many people over the years who say, my problem is that I cannot forgive myself. They've done something wrong, they've sinned seriously, and they feel very, very bad about it. They feel a tremendous amount of remorse for it. They see how it has hurt relationships. They see how it has had very negative consequences in their life. And they, let's say they've cheated on their wife, and they feel awful about it. And they go to her and they confess their sin and they say sorry and they ask for forgiveness and their spouse says, you know what, I see your repentance, I know that you are sorry and I know that you love me and I love you and so I'm going to forgive you. And then maybe they go and visit with the pastor and the pastor meets with them and they tell the pastor all the things that have happened, etc. And the pastor has the uh, authority and actually has the calling to pronounce the forgiveness of God on people. It's one of the roles of a minister of the word to declare that those who are repentant are forgiven. And so the minister says to that person, listen, I've heard your repentance. I believe that it is legitimate. And I want you to know that God forgives you of your sin. He takes it away. Jesus has paid for it. Be at rest. And the person comes back, and this has happened to me, they come back to me and they say, you know, I know God forgives me. I know he does. And yes, my spouse has forgiven me, and I know she has as well, but my problem is, is I cannot forgive myself. And not in every case, but more often than you would think, 
as you probe, as you discuss, as you try to unpack what in the world is going on that causes this person to say, I cannot forgive myself, you discover that they don't actually have a very low view of themselves. They have a pretty high view of themselves. Because what they're struggling with is the fact that they've done something that they thought they were never, ever capable of doing. And they've let themselves down or they've let their parents down and they feel a tremendous amount of guilt and anger and frustration over it. But they won't let go of the problem because they have a problem with praise, because they're hallowing the wrong thing. Underneath it all, their lives are justified by meeting their own expectations. Or their lives are justified by meeting the expectations of their parents or whomever. And they haven't done it. And they're crushing themselves by it because of it. I'm not saying that happens all the time, but it happens more often than you think. See, they're not living by the grace of God. They're living to please others. That's what they're hallowing. Either themselves and their own personal moral code or the world around them, their parents, their spouse, their children, whomever. And the point that Jesus is making here is, is that if you truly hallow God's name, then you can truly say to God, forgive us our debts. We, uh, we as a session, we meet once a month for training, learning how to be better theologians or better counselors or better leaders. Right now, Mark is, is walking us through the curriculum of something called How People Change. Many of you have, or not many of you, some of you have taken that course with him as well. It's a fantastic uh, a fantastic curriculum. And one of the things we were talking about on Monday uh, evening as we were going through training is this idea that our biggest problem is not that we do wrong things. Your biggest problem is not that you did it again, that you looked at that website again, that you picked up that bottle again, that you lit up that cigarette again, that you, you know, hung up on your friend again, that you did something. That's not your biggest problem. Our biggest problem is that we worship the wrong things. In those moments when we sin, the problem is not our lack of will to say no to sin. Our problem is our failure to worship who we really ought to worship. So, so as Mark likes to say, and he got it from one of his counselor mentor guys, you worshiped your way into sin. And so the answer is to worship your way out. We spend all our time, not all our time, we spend much of our time trying to say, if I just don't do that, if I just put another filter on my computer, if I just have another block on my, on my uh, Instagram feed, if I, if I, you know, just don't ever drive by the liquor store or whatever, if I just don't, 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 I can prevent myself from committing this sin. But the truth is, is the problem underneath the sin is that you're worshiping the wrong thing. And so all you're really doing is sin management as opposed to expelling that sin from your life. And this is why Robert Murray McShane says, you know, for every one look at your sin, you need to take ten looks at your Savior. Now let that sink in for a minute. When you're feeling bad about your sin, what do you do? You spend so much time looking at it. Reminding yourself of it. It's like shoving the nose of the dog in the vomit. You're shoving your own nose into your vomit. 
rather than looking up and seeing the beauty, the majesty, the glory of your Savior. Because when you do that, the, the, the grip of the idol becomes, it's, it's, it's weakened. And it starts to slide off the throne of your heart. If you think of your heart as a throne, I, I use this example all the time because kids love it and so do I. You go to a kid's birthday party and they play musical chairs. It's super fun. Music goes on, walk around, music goes off. There's five kids and only four chairs. Boom, one kid doesn't get it and they're out. And you go down to one chair, two kids, right? Music goes on. Kids walk around, music goes off, and then you get this epic slamming of two rear ends on the same chair, and they're battling for supremacy, and then finally one gets on and the other is off. That's the life of a Christian. It's a constant battle between the idols of this world that promise so much and deliver so little and the God of the universe who not only promised so much, he delivers on every one of them. I think we're into number three now. How do we do this? How do we, how do we, how do we hallow God's name? Well, when you come to God, I, sometimes I do this. When God is gracious and, 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 and he reminds me to do this, I stand in awe. I have a problem, I have a worry, I have an issue, and I go to God to prayer. And instead of running with him to him and just dumping that thing right away, I stop and I say, okay, Lord, hallowed be your name. How can I hallow your name? I meditate on the bigness, on the majesty, on the glory of God. Well, how do you do that? It's hard. Because we're so self-centered, it's very hard for us to get out of ourselves and, and think about God rather than us. But on the, the occasion where I actually listen to God and I seek ways to do it, you can do something like this. Psalm 147, verse 4, says this. He, God, determines the number of the stars and calls each by name. There are about 170 billion galaxies in the universe so far that we know of, each containing about 400 billion stars. That makes no, that means nothing to you, okay? That's a 10 with 24 zeros behind it. That's how many stars we know of exist in this universe. And God knows every single one of them. He put everyone exactly where he wanted it. And he gave it a name. And that still doesn't make sense to us. So think about this. One billion seconds is 31 years. A billion is a one with only nine zeros behind it. Anybody ever been to the beach? You go to the beach and you look one way and you look the other way and you see all this sand and sand is these little small little pebbles, tiny, tiny, tiny little pebbles and you see all this sand not even close to the number of stars in the universe. And every single piece of sand on that seashore, God knows it. I don't know if he names the sand on the seashore, but he could if he wanted to. This is how big God is. This is, this is taking a bit of time to simply 
glorify God for who he is. And see, when you do that, and then you take your problems to him, you go, hmm, that problem's not quite as big as I thought it was before. And that problem seems a lot more solvable in the hands of God than I ever thought before. There's a beautiful example of this in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. So Jehoshaphat, one of the best names ever in the Bible, Jehoshaphat, he is uh, king of Judah, and three armies are coming to attack. And he's scared, and it doesn't look good. It looks like they are going to totally get routed, and, and they're going to die. It's going to be the end of his reign. And the nation of Judah is going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And so he goes to God in prayer. And this is what he says right at the beginning. He says, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And he goes on and on and on recounting the power of God and the glory of God and the acts of God and all the amazing things that God has done and then in verse 20 he says this no verse 12 sorry this is how he ends our prayer the prayer our God will you not judge them for we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us we do not know what to do but our eyes are on you when your eyes are on the bigness of God, your problems are put in their proper place. The glory of God, when it shines through on your problems, you get the right perspective on them. You can look at them and you can say, He will hold me fast. Come hell or high water, come what may, I know one thing to be true. Because he is the creator of the universe. He is the redeemer of his people. He has chosen me since before the foundation of the world. Before there was a thing that existed. He already had his affection set on me. And he worked through history, setting the wheels of history in motion for the very purpose of making me his child and making himself known to me so that I would trust in his savior at the incredible cost of my Lord Jesus, the blood of the, God, of, of the Son of God himself was shed to make me his. He will not let me go. And so I face whatever I face, not with fear, not even with anxiety and frustration, but with hope. The most amazing thing of all of this is this. The highness and the lowness of God is best met, is best understood and is most clearly expressed at the cross of Jesus Christ. So when you meditate on the cross, when you think about the cross of Jesus Christ, what you see there is that God is pure and he is holy and he is spotless and he cannot abide sin. Just like you, if you've got a white shirt, we had the Nocturne Marsh, it's a, like a street party on Victoria Street last night and everybody's supposed to wear their summer white, so I get my only so-called white shirt out and sure enough, within 15 minutes, big stain on it, I look like an idiot. 
You want to, like, I live close by, so I'm like, I gotta go change my shirt. I don't want to walk around with this thing on it. You can't let it go. Perfectly white shirt, big glob of ketchup in the middle. You're going to keep wearing that? No way. You either clean it or you chuck it. And God at the cross shows that, that he is so holy that he has to do something with sin. And rather than chuck us, he cleaned us. In lowness, he came down as a man in the flesh and died for us. And that is the ultimate glory of God. Listen to how Paul Miller, he's a PCA pastor, writes a lot on prayer. He says, our normal idea of glory is this incredible, shiny, bright thing that leaves everybody astounded. The glory of God is revealed in God's weakness as he loved us. Bishop Neal says, if the crucifixion of Jesus is in some way, as Christians believe, the dying of God himself, then we understand what God is like. Someone's glory is the essence of who they are. At the cross, we see that God's essence is to hold nothing back for himself. He is completely other because at the cross, listen for it, God expends himself completely for us to the point of death. And that's his glory. The essence of God is that there is nothing in God for God. It is all for us. Understand something, friends. God held nothing back. And he was trampled on, but in being trampled on, his glory shone through. Because we don't shine his glory through the way we should. As you meditate on that, as you let that sink in, as you spend serious time reflecting on the sheer audacity of the cross, that the God who made the universe, who has every right to simply demand your allegiance and tell you to shut up when you are resistant, instead, chose to woo you with his love. Then you're ready to pray the rest of the Lord's Prayer. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand that your glory, your majesty is the basis, is the starting point of our prayer. That when we we see you for who you really are, then we can see ourselves and we can see our world and we can see our problems for what they really are. Help us to get out of ourselves, God. Help us to get out of ourselves and to look to the one whom Paul said in Galatians. He said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. May we see our Savior as the one who lives in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we are able to pray the Lord's Prayer in a way that pleases you, but also changes us. In your Son's name, amen. So it's been a while since we've had uh, opportunity to 
answer a question or two from the sermon um, because of all the special stuff that we've had going on. But if there are any questions now uh, about the message, a uh, question for clarification, uh, expand on an idea if possible, I'm happy to do that. Uh, all you got to do is raise your hand and speak or text me. My number's on the screen behind me. Yes. A good plug for a book study this summer? Which book is that? Are you talking about my Jessica? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Her, oh, yeah. This is a good, okay, now I get it. This is a good plug. Yes, I do talk to my wife occasionally. Uh, yeah, so, so we, we gave um, book recommendations for the summer, for the month of July, and her book recommendation is None Like Him, a book by Jen Welkin, where she does this very thing. She meditates on these attributes of God and just sort of explodes them so that you can hopefully understand a little bit more the magnitude of them. There's also this kids devotional. Kate talks about it all the time, and I forget the name of it. It's by Louis Giglio. We have it in our library um, that uh, helps kids. Uh, you know, Louis Giglio is really into the, like the general revelation of God, finding in science and in astronomy and all these things, these amazing evidences of the bigness of God and the beauty of the creation. That's another great one to do as families. Mark, do you know what it's called? Indescribable. Indescribable. Well, uh, it's that song. That's right. Indescribable. Uh, Let's see. How do we hallow God versus hallowing religion? That is a great question. When you hallow religion, when religion is, is the thing that you hallow, then you're focused on making sure you're doing the right religious things. You know, so making sure you're in church, making sure you're giving, making sure you're volunteering, making sure you're, you're being seen as, you know, it becomes performative. So your, your religious practices become performative. They're not out of a heart that, that wants God to be pleased and wants to spend time with God and commune with God. They're done as a way of satisfying your own desire to make sure that you're, you're you're right with God, you're doing the right thing, and maybe on top of that, your desire to see that, that others uh, see you as a person who is holy and doing the right things, and etc. And it is very easy, okay, friends, it is very easy for us to, to fall into that, to think that, you know, I'm right with God, like I have a good relationship with God because I'm checking the boxes, Right? And, and then what's ironic is, is that when you're not doing well and you look at your life and you go, oh, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not reading my Bible, I'm not going to church. I, so obviously there is some kind of correlation between my spiritual life and my practices, my spiritual practices. And I am certainly not encouraging anybody to go, oh, so the pastor says I don't have to go to church. Sweet, summer off, I'll go golf instead. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you're, you're looking at the motivation behind the things you do. If I show up at home with a bouquet of flowers on Mother's Day and I say to Jessica, well, it's Mother's Day. You got to give, give your wife flowers on Mother's Day here. She's going to be like, well, yeah, I like flowers, but I don't like your attitude, mister. 
right? She wants me to come on Mother's Day. Yes, should give her flowers on Mother's Day. Show up and give her the flowers and tell her these are simply a token of my heart's delight and love for you. Same action, different motivation. That's what we're talking about. All right, I'll see if one more... Yeah, so, so this is a question of how do you convince a person to forgive themselves when they know they are forgiven by everyone else, including God? So what I'm trying to say, I'm going to need Mark's help on this probably because I think I get, I get a little too simplistic at times. Mark understands the nuances of these things a little better than I do. So I'm going to say something that's going to sound really hurtful, but I don't intend it to. And so if... If I screw it up, come talk to me afterwards. I don't think the Bible tells us to forgive ourselves. This idea about forgiving myself is less a theological concept and more what I would call a psychological concept. That doesn't mean that you don't need to do some work on dealing with guilt in a, in a healthy way, and therapy and counselors are very good at helping you do that. What I am saying is, is I don't think the, the, the answer to that is um, just being told, you know, you need to, you need to understand that, that you are forgiven and you're a good person. And like, you don't, the, the solving of that problem is not uh, ego encouragement trying to convince yourself, well, no, you're a good person. You know, you just, you know, you're a good person who did a bad thing, and now you've put that behind you, and, and, and you're better now, and it'll be okay. It, it has to be dealt with uh, biblically, which means wrestling with the question, why can't you forgive yourself? And I'm less concerned about the language of um, can we forgive ourselves or not forgive ourselves. I'm more concerned with answering the question, whether you can or can't, why do you have this? Why are you holding on to this thing? Do you deep down underneath believe that you still need to pay? Is that what this is? That you, you need to do a little bit of penance somehow? Is it because you have issues of worth and, and, and you, you don't believe that, that you deserve to be forgiven? And I know I'm, nobody deserves to be forgiven. It's an oxymoron. But what I mean is, is that forgiveness is available to everybody but you because you're super bad in a way that nobody else is. Like, you've got to uncover the thing. You've got to peel back the onion. And I would just encourage you, if that's your thing, if that's, if that's an issue with you, talk to Mark. I'm not, and that's not me like, I don't want to have this problem and have you talk to me. I'm not like trying to avoid responsibility. I'm just saying... Mark is very good at working through things like this with people. And, and if, he, if you're not like super comfortable with doing it with him, he can connect you with Christian counselors, therapists outside our congregation who can certainly walk that, that journey with you as well.